This is Who Deserves a Monument, Episode 3. How did an orphan, teenage, runaway slave ignite the largest treason trial in U.S. history, pave the way for the Civil War, and maybe even play a role in President Lincoln's assassination? And what does all of this have to do with actress Zoe Deschanel? I thought he was bulletproof, or he just didn't care. He was, you know, he just wasn't scared of anything. Let's put it that way. The year is 1839. William Parker has just escaped the only life he's ever known, on foot from Maryland to Pennsylvania. He is 17 years old. What follows are William's words from later in life, when The Atlantic published his memoir. You'll hear them throughout this episode. While a slave, I was groping in the dark, but no ray of light penetrating the intense gloom surrounding me. My garments felt too tight for me, My very respiration seemed to be restrained by some supernatural power. Now, free as I supposed, I felt like a bird on a pleasant May morning. Instead of the darkness of slavery, my eyes were almost blinded by the light of freedom. It's true that Pennsylvania was a free state, but freedom was far from guaranteed. Despite a large community of anti-slavery Quakers, racism was blatant among much of the white population. And something called the Fugitive Slave Act meant as long as you were Black, you were never really free. There was a fair bit of kidnapping of free Blacks um, who could not prove that they were free or (laughs) whose slave hunters or judges didn't care if they were free or not, um, were captured and sent to the South into slavery. So it was certainly a... A very difficult and uncertain life for free Blacks. That's Brian Prince. He's an historian and author. My name is Brian Prince, and I live in a place called North Buxton, Ontario. Buxton was once Canada's largest planned settlement for former slaves and for free Blacks. So my ancestors were among those enslaved people who fled to Canada and found a home here. You might wonder... How can someone living in a free state just be kidnapped and sold into slavery? It's time for a monumental moment, the Fugitive Slave Act. By the late 1700s, several northern states and Canada had banned slavery, and enslaved people in southern states began to hear that they could escape to the north and be free. This created a real problem for enslavers and politicians in the South. Enslaved people were a valuable commodity in and of themselves, a way to get credit at the bank and build fancy plantation houses, and they helped to farm tobacco, cotton, and sugar that were notoriously labor-intensive crops. So the enslavers and politicians couldn't just stand by while their collateral escaped. Instead, they passed the Fugitive Slave Act in 1793 making it legal for basically anyone acting on behalf of an enslaver to capture any suspected runaway slave and take them before a judge to decide their fate. The judge didn't preside over a trial. He just took statements and then decided. So both actual runaway slaves and free Black men and women were kidnapped and enslaved regularly. This law ensured a steady supply of labor, even as the Atlantic slave trade ended in 1808, making it illegal to import captive people from Africa into the United States. It's no wonder that the glow of William Parker's freedom quickly faded. After a few years of life in a free state, the enthusiasm of the lad materially sobered down, and I found by bitter experience that to preserve my stolen liberty, I must pay unremittingly an almost sleepless vigilance. Still, there were pros to being in Pennsylvania. In his first months in freedom, William worked as a farmhand earning $3 a month, an unbelievable sum to him. I could go out on Saturdays and Sundays and home when I pleased without being whipped. I thought of my fellow servants left behind, bound in the chains of slavery, and I was free. I thought that if I had the power, they should soon be as free as I was. 
and I formed a resolution that I would assist in liberating everyone within my reach at the risk of my life, and that I would devise some plan for their entire liberation. Little did he know how successful he would be. His plans began to take shape after his landlord, Dr. Denji, took him to hear anti-slavery speakers William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass in their neighborhood in Lancaster County. Garrison was a white, prominent abolitionist with a widely read anti-slavery newspaper called The Liberator. Douglas was a prominent abolitionist and prolific speaker and writer who later had his own newspaper, too. These guys are important. They come up again and again in our podcast. So Parker goes to hear Douglas speak, and he's like, wait a minute, I know this guy. Turns out they were born just across the Chesapeake Bay from each other and were close in age. William remembered Douglas from their days in enslavement. But boy, had things changed. In the words of William Parker, I had formerly known Mr. Douglas as a slave in Maryland. I was therefore not prepared for the progress he then showed, including for his free-spoken and manly language against slavery. I listened with the intense satisfaction that only a refugee could feel when hearing embodied in earnest, well-chosen, and strong speech, his own crude ideas of freedom and his own hearty censure of the man-stealer. I believed I knew every word he said was true. It was the whole truth, nothing kept back, no trifling with human rights, no trading in the blood of the slave extenuated, nothing against the slaveholder said in malice. I have never listened to words from the lips of mortal man which were more acceptable to me. Douglas's words inspired Parker to form a Mutual Protection Society, a group of white, black, always free, and newly free people who would look out for each other and for those still fleeing the South. Kidnapping was so common while I lived with the doctor that we were kept in constant fear. We would hear slaveholders or kidnappers every two or three weeks. Sometimes a party of white men would break into a house and take a man away. No one knew where, and again, a whole family would be carried off. There was no power to protect them, no prevent it. So completely roused were my feelings that I vowed to let no slaveholder take back a fugitive if I could get my eye on him. Living under these conditions for years, William had many chances to earn his bold-as-a-lion reputation. His legend is full of story after story of his heroism. He was always housing runaways, helping them navigate the Underground Railroad, operating in stealth and secrecy like the others. But this is William Parker, who doesn't take crap from anybody. So as time passed, he began to openly flout the law and tempt fate. In one better-known story, William's roommate said, Hey, that guy's been riding up here every day and watching you from the other side of the fence. I think he's a kidnapper. You should watch out. So what does William do? He runs the other direction and never looks back, right? Not a chance. William, he waits for the guy to come back. Then he heads right over to the fence, looks the kidnapper steady in the eyes and says, Am I your slave? Something about William often sent people running for the hills. This guy, who was indeed thinking about kidnapping William, turned his horse and rode off full speed toward the valley. As William said, we did not see him again. One day, William led a group to stand in vigilance outside of the courthouse where a kidnapped friend, John Dorsey, was on trial. When they heard the news that he was convicted, William and a group he gathered tried to separate Dorsey from his guards and free him outside the courthouse. A general fight followed. Bricks, stones, and sticks fell in showers. We fought across the road and back again and I thought our brains would be knocked out when the whites, who were too numerous for us, commenced making arrests. They got me fast several times, but I succeeded in getting away. One of our men was arrested and afterwards stood trial, but they did not convict him. Dorsey was put into jail, but was afterwards bought and liberated by friends. Often, William was awakened by a horn call in the night, spreading alarm across the valley understood by all in the Mutual Protection Society as a call to arms. William would race out on horseback or on foot, armed with whatever he had, but rarely a gun. 
Time and time again, he called the bluff of whatever fool pointed a gun at his head. His luck almost ran out. He was shot at least once, in the ankle, removing the bullet himself. Once, he burned down the house of a black man who was betraying escaped slaves. With him inside. He never doubted his instincts to fight. The insolent and overbearing conduct of the Southerners when on such errands to Pennsylvania forced me to my course of action. They did not hesitate to break open doors and to enter without ceremony the houses of colored men. And when refused admission, or when a manly and determined spirit was shown, they would present pistols and strike and knock down men and women indiscriminately. I was sitting one evening in a friend's house conversing about these marauding parties when I remarked to him that a stop would be put to such dados and declared that the next time a slaveholder came to a house where I was, I would refuse to admit him. His wife replied, it will make a fuss. I told her it is time a fuss was made. She insisted that it would cause trouble and it was best to let them alone and have peace. Then I told her we must have trouble before we could have peace. The first slaveholder that draws a pistol on me, I shall knock down. Just then, there's a knock at the door. Who's there? William asks. It's me, who do you think? Open the door, the response. What do you want? William asks. Without replying, three men burst through the door, hurling racial slurs and looking for a fight. One man draws a pistol and points it at William. Unarmed, William reaches for the nearest heavy object and without hesitation, nails the kidnapper dead in the jaw with his fireplace tongs. When the man comes to, he gathers himself and walks out, empty-handed. Word of William's fearless fists and flying tongs spread throughout the area, so much so that his own home was never approached by kidnappers. William had a wife at this point, a woman who had also escaped enslavement named Eliza Howard and they had two or three kids. According to William, Eliza had it far worse than him in enslavement, but very little is known about Eliza's early life. William's account of his own early life paints a lonely picture. His mother died when he was very young, and his father, likely a white man, wasn't in the picture. This meant that even though William had aunts and uncles and cousins at the farm, he grew up more or less an orphan. He lived in a long, low building, I imagine it like a stable with stalls, that had fireplaces at either end. The rooms lining the sides were for the other orphans and single adults. Families had their own housing. The fireplaces were all they had to keep warm during the cold winters, when temperatures were regularly below freezing. As the youngest child and with no defenders, William was often pushed out of the warmth of the fire. Those long, cold nights gave him plenty of time to think about his situation. And he was three or four years younger than most of these guys. And he kind of whipped a couple of them, and that kind of solved that, and then brought all the small kids up there. Brought them up to the fireplace. He started off at a very young age as a leader, as a, I guess you could say, someone who wasn't going to take any crap from anybody. That's Rick Parker. William's great-great-grandson. We'll hear more from him later. So William is scrappy from the get-go, but he's also smart. Judging from his memoir, William didn't miss anything. He was 10 or 11 when word came to the slave quarter that they shouldn't work that day, but instead go up to the great house where the enslavers lived. As we were about obeying the summons, a number of strange white men rode up to the mansion. They were Negro traders. Taking alarm, I ran away to the woods with a boy of about my own age named Levi Storax. And there we remained until the selections for the sale were made and the traders drove away. It was a serious time while they remained. Men, women, and children all were crying and general confusion prevailed. This was a slave auction, William's first. Slave auctions were a common and uniquely painful part of being enslaved. For young William, the shock of what happened next was etched into his memory. And now, without a word of warning and for no fault of their own, parents and children, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters were separated to meet no more on earth. 
A slave sale of this sort is always as solemn as a funeral and partakes of its nature in one important particular, the meeting no more in the flesh. Never again would parents and their children, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, meet again on this earth. The slave auction was not just one death, but many. William and Levi went back home that night to face what happened. Both of them lost family members that day to the sale. Aunts, uncles, and cousins divided up and sold to the Deep South, where the stories of the treatment of enslaved people were terrifying. The apologist for slavery at the North and the owner of his fellow man at the South have steadily denied that the separation of families, except for punishment, was perpetrated by Southern masters. But my experience of slavery was that separation by sale was a part of the system. Not only was it resorted to by severe masters, but as in my own case, by those generally regarded as mild. No punishment was so much dreaded by the refractory slave as selling. Here's William's great-great-grandson again. Hi, my name is William Frederick Parker. I'm 68 years old. He lives in Ontario, Canada, and is helping to bring William Parker's story to light. So Levi and him climbed a tree and watched the whole proceedings. And the first time Canada had come up and William had said, uh, you know, we got to get to Canada. And Levi said, it's too cold up there. What he really said is that they'd freeze to death before they got there. So, so anyway, William was really upset because his aunt was sold and a couple of other relatives were sold. And so he basically had decided at a really, really young age that he wasn't going to put up with this. So he played the game and him and his brother Charles were plotting their escape. Playing the game mostly meant biding his time, listening, watching, learning, looking for ways to justify leaving. Here's historian Brian Prince. And it's interesting, he says that he, he was a moral character and felt some regrets or, or some pangs about escaping from slavery um, when actually his master had not been that harsh with him. It's time for another monumental moment, the kindly master. This kindly master myth is dangerous and pervasive. It comes up again in our story. It was used to justify slavery by saying that enslaved people were just lower members of the household, working alongside their masters. This myth also tells us that African Americans were inferior and couldn't live on their own, couldn't take care of themselves, so the kindly white farmer provided for them and ensured their safety. The thing was, it didn't matter if you had a kind master like William thought he did. It didn't matter if you were part of a family. You could be bought and sold endlessly, and some people were. Still, William wanted a good reason to leave, and eventually, he got one. One of the neighbor's men had told William that they needed his help and that his master had said it would be okay for him to go over there. So he went. But it was a lie, and Master Mac, as William called him, was livid when he found out. Master Mac threatened to whip him, but didn't in the end, saying the next time he screwed up, he'd just repay him for the old and the new. So one day William decided to force his enslaver's hand. Everything went on well until June, when the long sought for opportunity presented itself. I had been making preparations to leave ever since Master Mac had threatened me, yet I did not like to go without first having a difficulty with him. Much as I disliked my condition, I was ignorant enough to think that something besides the fact that I was a slave was necessary to exonerate me from blame and running away. A crossword, a blow, a good fight, anything would do. It mattered not whence nor how it came. I told my brother Charles, who shared my confidence, to be ready, for the time was at hand when we should leave old Maryland forever. I was only waiting for the first crooked word from my master. Rick Parker continues the story, and I want to issue a warning. He'll use the N-word in the historical retelling of this part of the story. 
Fast forward one minute to miss it. So it's a work day and it's pouring rain. And William decides, I'm not going to work. So he goes in the barn and he's sort of hanging out, sleeping on the hay and whatever. And sure enough, his old master shows up. So he says to him, why aren't you working today? And he says, because it's raining and I'm tired. So the master grabs this ox gird thing. This thing is a whip. And William catches it as he tries to hit him and then beats the living daylights out of the guy. And as he's leaving, he said, uh, you can tell everybody this nigger just saved your life. So anyway, he yells at Charles, who's in the field. They take off running. But they don't leave right away. They hide in plain sight and take the time to say goodbye to their grandmother. They pack their bags. That night, they set off on foot to Baltimore. It takes them a day to get there. They hide among the city's free Black population for a couple of days and then make their way north. It's not an easy passage. William and Charles are stopped multiple times by slave hunters, and they come upon Master Mac's brother-in-law in the backwoods, plotting to capture them at a bridge crossing. William physically fights off at least one slave hunter, breaking his arm and sending him running. And he outsmarts Master Mac's hunter by altering his course. Eventually, they make it to Pennsylvania. Perhaps walking right past the farm of Edward Gorsuch, a man who would grow to wish he'd never laid eyes on William Parker. Uh, in Maryland, there was a slave owner named Edward Gorsuch. Brian Prince again. One of the grand old families of Maryland. And um, he had a considerable amount of slaves. At one point, he had some wheat that went missing. And there was a free black named Abraham Johnson, who was suspected, but also four of Edward Gorsuch's slaves were suspected of being involved in, in stealing this wheat. And so the... Those slaves um, escaped and went to Pennsylvania to flee the, the wrath of Edward Gorsuch. So they li lived there actually for, um, if my memory is right, I, I believe for a couple of years. Um, it, it's a quite a length of time. And um, so th they become involved with uh, uh, William Parker and his family and Abraham Johnson, the free black from Maryland, also comes and he's, he's a part of the group. And so eventually um, it is discovered where these runaway slaves are. They're in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So it's not just discovered that these slaves are in Lancaster. It's 1851. And we're now living under the laws of something called the Compromise of 1850. You guessed it. It's time for a monumental moment, the Compromise of 1850. The Compromise is actually five laws introduced by Senator Henry Clay designed to prevent a civil war over slavery. Spoiler, it didn't work. In addition to admitting California as a free state and leaving Utah and New Mexico to decide whether they would be a slave state or a free state, the Compromise of 1850 appeased Southerners by making it easier for enslavers to recover runaway slaves under the Fugitive Slave Act. Remember that law? Well, they managed to make it even worse. By 1850, many Northerners were really done with slavery. They didn't believe in it and didn't support it. This was a problem because it meant they were much less likely to help recover runaway slaves in their midst. So the compromise strengthened the Fugitive Slave Act by one, requiring citizens to assist in apprehending runaway slaves, and two, placing control of individual cases in the hands of federal commissioners, who were paid $10 for returning a suspected slave to their owner, or $5 for setting them free. Did you catch that? So it's $10 for returning a suspected slave, or half that for setting them free. Which do you think the federal commissioners were likely to pick? So, not only can you be recaptured or taken as a free person and enslaved, just as before, now everyone around you is required by law to assist in your capture or risk their own arrest. And there are federal bounty hunters ready to implement this state-sanctioned terror. As you can imagine, 
This went over like a ton of bricks with many in the North. It was one thing for others to be capturing and enslaving people, but to be forced to do it themselves was a leap. So the, all those underground railroad agents and, and just normal citizens who, uh, people of, of heart and compassion who may help Blacks, um, were, were threatened with jail terms and financial penalties. Some of them would lose their, their homes and their, their farms. And at this time, it certainly accelerated the flight to Canada because Blacks were no longer safe in those northern states. Some of them may have been free for generations. They may have owned property. Um, they were so fearful that they fled in by the hundreds to Canada. So the, the, the fugitive slave law was it had a, a huge impact on the society in both the United States and in Canada. So to retrace, we've got missing slaves and a wanted freeman in Maryland who are suspected of hiding at William Parker's house in Pennsylvania. And we've got a guy named William Paget who writes the prominent, well-known enslaver Edward Gorsuch and says, hey, I know where those four men are. And if you want to come to Lancaster County, hire a federal marshal and pay me for what I know, I'll take you right to him. Gorsuch jumped at the opportunity to get his slaves back. He was another of these kindly masters. He worked alongside his slaves and sometimes freed them when they reached a certain age. He saw himself as incredibly kind and gracious, and as a result, was beyond angry that he was being treated this way by his slaves. Even though it had been a couple of years, he wanted them back, and so he set out to meet Paget in Christiana, Pennsylvania. Edward Gorsuch took an express train from Baltimore to Philadelphia, where he got warrants for the fugitive slaves the next day. This leads us to our next monumental moment, vigilance committees. You probably know this by now, but the Underground Railroad was not actually underground, but it did often involve railroads. The Underground Railroad acted as a connected network of safe places with conductors all along the way who would make sure you came and left safely. Conductors were white and black, and by 1851, the Underground Railroad had been operating for decades, nearly a century. It was very sophisticated. In larger towns like New York, Philadelphia, and Boston, there were also vigilance committees. They raised funds and provided food, housing, and money to help fugitives settle into a new community. They also kept records to help families reunite. William Still is the guy who leads the Vigilance Society in Philadelphia. He's a big-time abolitionist. He was born free to formerly enslaved parents in New Jersey, the youngest of 18 children. He's a prominent businessman, coal merchant, and philanthropist. He can't be everywhere at once, but he's got people, lots of people. Some of them are stationed at the fugitive slave offices. So when someone comes to request a warrant to recapture a fugitive slave, one of the Vigilance Society people is hanging around, listening, so they can go alert the network. So from the minute Edward Gorsuch requests the warrants, this network of informants knows. They are activated. Gorsuch gets the warrants and gets assigned a federal marshal named Henry Klein to help him make the arrests. Klein and Gorsuch board a train leaving Philadelphia, heading closer to Christiana. Samuel Williams, one of the members of the Vigilance Society, is on the train with Gorsuch and Klein to track their movements. Williams doesn't hide. He sits right in the same car as them and is like, hi, I'm here, I see you. He's doing that thing where you point to your eyes and then you point to their eyes. But Gorsuch and Klein are undeterred. Klein gets off the train to go get a horse-drawn wagon so he can pick up the other group coming from Maryland. The other group includes Gorsuch's son Dickinson and four neighbors who came up from Baltimore on a different train. They're all planning to meet near Christiana in the early morning hours of September 10th to quickly recapture the men under the cover of darkness. So the second group is waiting in the woods at 2 a.m. for Klein, but he never comes because his wagon breaks. So they leave. When Klein comes back with a new wagon, the group is gone. So he starts roaming the back roads of Lancaster County looking for them. 
I'm old enough to remember a time before cell phones, so I can kind of relate to this. Also, I'm going to take this pause to bring in Dave Taylor to help me tell this story. Dave writes the Lincoln Conspirators blog, which includes a great account of what's about to happen. Now, Gorsuch's group is all dispersed because of the broken wagon. They're in three different places. But you know who got his own horse? Samuel Williams, the spy from the Vigilance Committee. So all along, he's still shadowing Klein. Klein decides to mosey into a tavern in the early morning hours of September 10th. He casually asks the bartender if he's seen any Marylanders because he's looking for some horse thieves. The bartender says, no, man. And as Klein turns to leave, he runs right into Samuel Williams. So Samuel L. Williams... Okay, not his name, but it's how I imagine him. He says, your horse thieves were here and gone. You might as well go home. I know what you're all about. But Klein, the federal marshal, he plays dumb. We'll come to learn he does this a lot. Williams, the spy, goes back to Christiana and begins to spread the word that there are kidnappers in the area and that they're headed straight for William Parker's house. Gorsuch's group, the slave catchers, eventually all meet up outside of Christiana. Everyone pretty much knows at this point that They've lost the element of surprise. They are also a full day behind schedule, so they decide to wait again for dark, so at least they'll have the protection of darkness when they approach William Parker's house. Meanwhile, William Parker is home, just hanging out. He's living with his wife and his wife's sister and her husband, Hannah and Alexander Pinckney. And yes, a couple of the men Edward Gorsuch is looking for, they're living there too. They're all in a house they rented from a Quaker named Levi Ponell. Levi's wife, Sarah, stops by William's house and says... You all just need to run and get to Canada. This isn't going to end well. William's like, no, I'm going to fight. Pacifism makes sense for whites, but the law and the courts, they don't work for black people, and a man can only run so far. Sarah Ponell resigns herself to what's about to happen, reluctantly nods her head in agreement, and then, unexpectedly, bursts into song and physical comedy because she's the great-great-great-great-grandmother of television and film's adorkable Zoe Deschanel. Okay, so she didn't sing or fake a fall, but she really was Zoe's very great-grandmother, and William Parker was living in her house. So despite Sarah's warning, William obviously decides that they should stand their ground. He hasn't ever run from kidnappers, and he's not about to start now. The slave catchers, six men from Maryland, and the federal marshal, Henry Klein, approach the house before dawn. It's a heavy, foggy morning. They arrive at the dusty road leading to Parker's house and run right into a man a black man whistling down the lane as the sun begins to peek through the fog. The man is Nelson Ford, and he locks eyes with Gorsuch, his former enslaver. They recognize each other immediately. Ford spins around and runs back up the lane to the house. He throws open the door and he yells, Kidnappers! Kidnappers! Gorsuch's group quickly moves to surround the house as Edward Gorsuch himself and the Marshal Henry Klein run through the open door after Ford. Above them, they hear anxious movements and the sounds of weapons being loaded and dragged across the floor. These are the sounds of William Parker getting out of bed, because he was not concerned about the rumors he'd heard. Gorsuch yells up for his men to come down and give themselves up. He says, all will be forgiven if you just come down peacefully. And then William appears at the stairs. Who are you? He demands. Klein identifies himself as the U.S. Marshal, and William tells him he doesn't care for him or the United States. Take another step and I will break your neck. Klein takes a step back to cool things down. He's got warrants in his hands, and he just keeps reading them over and over, shouting the orders up the stairs. Meanwhile, upstairs, William's brother-in-law, Alexander Pinckney, himself a runaway slave, is starting to feel like they should just give in. William says, no way, we will fight to the death. Downstairs, Gorsuch is feeling bold. He's got the law on his side. He tells Klein, let's just go upstairs and take him. William interjects. See here, old man, you can come up, but you can't go down again. And with that, William hurls a metal fishing spear down the stairs at the men. And then he throws an axe. Now they both miss, but Gorsuch and Klein head back outside just to be safe. All the while, Parker's supporters are slowly gathering. Remember, Samuel Williams had already spread the word, and Henry Klein was all over the place. So plenty of people saw this group make their very long way to Parker's house. So people start appearing. White Quakers, other runaways and free blacks. Some are on horseback, but mostly they are on foot. A man named Kastner Hanway walks up to the developing scene. He's a white miller from down the road. Klein, the marshal, assumes he's on his side because he's white. So he starts talking to Hanway. He tells him about his warrants and how he's being disrespected. Hanway is like, oh, sorry about your luck, but I'm not going to help you. 
And remember, everyone is technically required by law to assist in the recapture of runaway slaves. So Klein is angry. He starts shouting resolutions. They're spouting off Bible verses in legal terms. Gorsuch says, doesn't the Bible say servants obey your masters? And Parker says, yes, but it also says give unto your servants that which is just and equal. It starts getting really heated. Threats are flying. Eliza, William Parker's wife, she's upstairs. She's like, I am done. I am not going back to enslavement. I'm going to blow my horn to alert everyone in the valley that we need help. As soon as Eliza blows the horn, bullets start flying. The first of the conflict. She keeps blowing the horn louder and louder as the bullets fly past her. One grazes the top of her head, but remarkably, she escapes unscathed. The horn draws more resistors from the valley. People come rushing in with crude weapons like corn knives and other farm tools. They surround William Parker's house, boxing in Gorsuch and his band of men. Gorsuch says, I'll have my men or I'll breakfast in hell, and walks right up to the line of men outside of Parker's home. He locks eyes with Joshua Hammond, one of the men he came to retrieve, who by this point had voluntarily shown up at Parker's to join the resistance. Hammond says, Oh man, you had better go home to Maryland. And Gorsuch says, give it up, Hammond. You're coming with me. And at that, Hammond just clubs his former master with a revolver, knocking him down. When Gorsuch tries to get up, Hammond pistol whips him again. With Edward Gorsuch at the ground at his feet, Joshua Hammond takes his revolver and fires once at his former enslaver. Dickinson Gorsuch runs toward his father, hoping to come to his aid. But he's clubbed and loses his grip on his own gun. Now disarmed, Dickinson turns to run when Alexander Pinckney unloads two shotgun blasts. Dickinson is hit in the right side and crawls to a fence corner, where he collapses. At this point, the Gorsuch posse can do nothing but run for their lives. And they do. Kastner Hanway protects them for a time, but ultimately, he takes off on horseback to leave the slave catchers to fend for themselves. Gorsuch's nephew Joshua is separated from the group and overtaken. He is severely beaten but survives. Back at the Parker home, Edward Gorsuch, the 56-year-old Maryland enslaver, lies dead. Despite later newspaper accounts that Gorsuch was beaten beyond recognition, the coroner's report said he died from a single gunshot wound. Dickinson Gorsuch, his son, was bleeding from the over 70 shot wounds from Alexander Pickney's shotgun when he was found by a local Quaker, Joseph Scarlett. Scarlett gathered up the critically wounded Dickinson and took him to the nearby farm of Levi Ponell, Parker's landlord. Dickinson would spend the next few days at the Ponell farm being tended to. He would later write in deep appreciation to the Ponells for their assistance in his time of need. When the dust had settled on Christiana, it was more than a slave rebellion. It was pro-slavery versus anti-slavery 20 miles north of the Mason-Dixon line. It was an emblem of the nation's deep divisions. The unwillingness of those in the North to protect the way of life for those in the South, even if it meant death. This was a defining moment for slavery. If it wasn't illegal to kill a prominent enslaver who came with warrants to reclaim his property, then the whole system would begin to crumble. The fallout was swift. As William Parker and Alexander Pinckney fled to Canada, Their wives were both arrested and jailed. Even Parker's elderly mother-in-law was jailed. In all, the United States charged 41 people involved in the rebellion with treason, specifically with violating the Fugitive Slave Law and intending to levy war against the United States. That's what treason means. This was the largest treason trial in U.S. history and would decide whether slavery could survive. Surprisingly, Kastner Hanway was the first defendant to go on trial that November in Philadelphia. He's the white miller from Christiana who came on the scene and spoke with Klein. Somehow, he got pinned as the mastermind of the rebellion. His refusal to help recapture the slaves was seen as an act of war. John Ashmead, opening for the prosecution, said, and I'm paraphrasing, the defendant, with a whole lot of other people, armed and arrayed in a warlike manner with guns, swords, and other weapons, came together as traitors and decided to prevent the execution of the laws of the United States. Except they used the words traitorous and traitorously dozens of times. The defense strategy 
developed by legendary abolitionist Thaddeus Stevens, was to mock the federal government's case. Theodore Kyler for the defense said in response, more or less, Did you hear it? That three harmless, non-resisting Quakers and 38 penniless Black people, armed with corn cutters, clubs, and a few muskets, led by a miller in a felt hat and no coat on a crappy horse, levied war against the United States? Blessed be God that our union has survived the shock. Klein testified that he directed Hanway to help him capture the slaves. He also had to admit that he went and hid behind a fence during the altercation and didn't actually see what happened very clearly. The defense put forward 29 character witnesses who all testified that Klein was a lying slave hunter. In the closing statement by the defense, Joseph Lewis argued, It ought always to be remembered that this business of hunting down fugitives is the business of the persons from whom they escape, and that we really have nothing to do with it. We have no interest in it. And if the scenes to which such man and woman hunting give rise are revolting to the sensibilities of our people, it's too much to expect them to assist, and they cannot and will not be frightened into it by prosecutions for treason. If, therefore, the object of this prosecution is to drive our people into an active pursuit of such slaves as may happen to come into our state, it must fail. They will not chase frightened men and women, though they be black, from wood to wood and from hill to hill with firearms and bludgeons, to the great alarm of peaceful neighborhoods and the scandal of human society. In the end, the charge of treason was just too big a bridge to cross for the judges. Hanway was acquitted by a jury after just 15 minutes of deliberation, and charges were never pursued against the other 40 defendants. The idea that this battle constituted war against the United States was ludicrous, but the damage was far-reaching for proponents of slavery. The outcome of this trial and this rebellion is that the United States could no longer enforce the Fugitive Slave Act. It was clear that northern states would no longer play along, and they would face no penalty for it. It seems, however, that Edward Gorsuch wasn't the only victim of the Christiana Rebellion. It's nine years later, it's 1860, there's this young man, he's in Philadelphia at the time, he travels around the country quite a bit, he's in his, at his mother's house and he's writing this speech. It's the secession crisis, everyone is trying to figure out what's gonna happen, are we on the side of let the South secede or not? And he talks about how when he was a young man growing up in Maryland, that his best friend, Thomas Gorsuch had his father killed uh, by abolitionists up in Pennsylvania. And he lays the secession crisis exclusively at the feet of those vile abolitionists who murdered his friend's father and then the abolitionists who put him to trial and let him all go off without any justice at all. And so he writes this whole speech, he never gives it. But five years later, there's no doubt in my mind, this young man is still thinking about the way that abolitionists and now Lincoln have ruined the country because that man was John Wilkes Booth. That's right. The John Wilkes Booth who assassinated Abraham Lincoln was Thomas Gorsuch's best friend. And he kills him on April 14th, 1865. Back in 1851, William Parker and Alexander Pinckney are on the run. Here's Rick Parker. They go on and Frederick Douglass maps the road out for them to go, which is the hardest route to get to the north. And he did that because if he put them on the easier route, he feared they'd get caught. So they're on a train. And the, uh, one of the people on the train has a newspaper. Now, William is sitting beside a white guy. The other two, they're in the back of the train. So this other guy, this other guy on the, on the train is reading the newspaper that has a description of William. So the guy, the guy says, if I ever see him, I'm gonna collect. It was a thousand dollar bounty on his head. Thousand dollars back in 1851, that's some serious money. So they get on the train, they're on the train and this guy's talking to William and the guy obviously knew who he was from looking at him and he's talking to him and he said, I wouldn't wanna run across him. The guy's brave and whatever. So anyway, they get to Rochester. And he meets up again with his old friend, Frederick Douglass, 
who hides him for a couple of days, and then they get him on a ship that left Kingston, Ontario, and he headed to Toronto. But he misses Eliza, and he misses his kids. At that time, he's got four kids. He, his wife Eliza, and their four children eventually settled in a Black community in Buxton, Ontario, where they purchased a 50-acre lot of land. They had six more children in Canada. Here's Brian Prince talking about the Elgin settlement in Buxton. The family comes here to Buxton, the Elgin settlement, and they um, um, get land. They can buy it for $2.50 an acre. They have 10 years to pay for it. The job is to clear this forested land and um, put up a log house. There was a lot of opposition to this large black settlement um, from people of European descent who, who were living in the county at the time. So there are some very strict rules set out um, for Buxton um, to kind of fend off these arguments. They had to have a, a house with at least four rooms in it. There had to be an upstairs and a downstairs. There had to be a porch in the front, a picket fence, a flower garden, um, it had to be 33 feet back from the road. Uh, but the rules were put in place so that not only any visitors, any of the whites who might look, could see that it was a neat, well-cared-for community. It was also designed to ensure those runaway slaves and, and free blacks who came, that they could look at their own community and feel proud of it. and. Um, so, so the Parkers were, were certainly a part of that. The Parkers lived a good life in Canada. William learned to read and write, helping him continue his fight against slavery. He stayed in touch with his friend Frederick Douglass and was a correspondent for his paper, The North Star. He became a local elected official in Buxton. But he couldn't get Christiana out of his mind. When he was asked to give a speech there after the end of the Civil War, he decided to go back risking everything he'd gained. He had disappeared and people thought that he had uh, been killed because the guy, was, the guy went back to North Christiana in 1872 and he went back to see his friends. Like this is 20 years after, you know, the guy, either he thought he was bulletproof or he just didn't care. He was, you know, he just wasn't scared of anything, let's put it that way. William and Eliza have 10 kids at the time he decides to leave the safety of Canada and travel back to Pennsylvania, the scene of the crime. Pennsylvania has stopped sending warrants for his arrest to Canada. It's been 21 years. Parker probably thinks it's safe. Well, no one in Canada ever hears from Parker again. He's assumed dead. It's not safe for any Black man in 1872, especially one who disrupted life for so many. You have to remember, Parker made a lot of enemies. Here's Brian Prince. And so you see the, the overall uh, story of the, the details of the resistance and the death of Gorsuch and, and that. Um, and you realize that and there's a, a, a sweeping dragnet of capturing uh, blacks uh, throughout the area. Everyone is suspected. Their homes are raided. Um, many are arrested and jailed. And um, so these people's lives will never be the same. They're, they're never quite safe. E even those that remain um, certainly suffer. And there's that fear and there, there's a repercussions against them. And um, so all of their lives are, are disrupted and never can quite be restored to as they were. It's hard to say what could have happened to Parker. He was as hated as he was loved. He left a lot of lives in disrepair. His own mother-in-law was sold back into slavery after what he did. In fact, for nearly 150 years, no one knew what became of William Parker. That is, until 2012. 
That's when our friend Brian Prince was doing some research on William Parker for a book and found an interesting piece of evidence, his death certificate. And I, I had also tried to find Parker for, um, for many years, but I, I ran across his obituary, his death notice in a newspaper. And so he is living in Kenton, Ohio. And then as I researched that, when he had returned to um, Pennsylvania, he had got together with uh, one of the women there. Her husband had actually been one of the ones arrested after the Christiana resistance. And so they get together and, and they moved to Ohio. And so that's where, where he is buried. So Parker goes back to Christiana and sees Martha Sims, the wife of Henry Sims, one of his friends and fellow resistors at Christiana. And he falls madly and deeply in love, so much so that he never sees or communicates with anyone in Canada ever again. He and Martha moved to Ohio. Little is known about their life together. Martha had daughters from her first marriage, and she and William didn't have any children together. We do know that Kenton, Ohio, was a hotbed of Ku Klux Klan activity at that time. Records show that Parker died in 1891, around the age of 70, and is buried in the Sims family plot of the Grove Cemetery in Kenton. By the time it was discovered, only a faint Parker could be read on an otherwise unmarked grave. Rick Parker was not proud to learn of his great-great-grandfather's second life, but still, he thinks his story is important. I found out about William about five or six years ago. I got a package from my sister and I opened it up and in there was a book, a memoir, and just a a small letter saying that uh, this is our great-great-grandfather. And it kind of struck me of why, you know, throughout all the years, nobody knew. And those that... I shouldn't say nobody. Those that knew never said anything. Like it was never, ever brought up, which I can understand, but I also look at it like something's not right. You know, you have a right, you have a right to your history. You have a right to know. I think, I think that's, What's missing in a lot of our culture is that there are heroes. It's all right to be Black. William and Eliza Parker belong among the giants. There, when John Brown, the famous John Brown that uh, um, invades Harper's Ferry and has the battle there, and um, when he is in Canada trying to rally uh, people to support him. Um, there's a letter, um, a cryptid letter um, that they wrote saying that they came to the bush in Buxton and met the man who would be the leading light in their fight against slavery. And his wife is also a heroine. And um, they, they don't name him, but I've always suspected that it was William and Eliza Parker that they were talking about. Who Deserves a Monument is developed, written, and produced by me, Sarah Lonis, with sound design, mixing, and editing by Chloe Vantel. Our cover art is by Deshaun Fortune. I'd like to thank Rick Parker, Brian Prince, and Dave Taylor. William Parker is portrayed by the fabulous Dennis Neal. Who Deserves a Monument is a production of Booksmart Media. See you next time.